Back again, back again, episode two, Swords and Magic. The woman's face lost its color. I froze waiting to see what she would do. If she starts towards me, I'll run, I thought, planning out my escape into the great unknown. I'll hide in the woods, I'll, I'll take the fork left. I won't get arrested for... clothes theft? Because at the time, that was what I was worried about. I hadn't known why she would go pale from me instead of shouting, instead of reacting with anger. Whatever I know now, at the time, I thought it was because a muddy girl was standing in her yard and stealing her dresses. But she didn't drive me away. Instead, she started towards me, slowly, arms outstretched and fingers splayed like I was a stray cat she was trying to coax inside. The woman murmured something under her breath, in a language I couldn't understand, but it was calm. It was meant to soothe me, I could tell. Her dark hair began to plaster to her face in the rain, but she continued to move towards me with these slow, deliberate steps. She reached me, still murmuring something I couldn't pick apart. I froze, deer in headlights, waiting for the other shoe to drop, for something to snap. One hand still clutched the clothesline dress. The woman peeled her jacket from her shoulders. Every action was slow and deliberate, and I've said that before, but it was like she realized how close I was to booking it, this feral thing in her yard. She draped the jacket around my shoulders and smiled softly, her eyes crinkling. The woman smelled like jasmine and pine. The world seemed softer as she put her hand onto my shoulder. I didn't know what she was saying, but the meaning was clear. The weather's too poor to be out in the rain. Come inside. It's okay. So I let her lead me inside. This woman soft and motherly amid the pouring rain and yelling people in unfamiliarity. She pulled down a pair of trousers from the line, wet through, but so was I, and handed them to me. I clutched them to my chest as she brought me through the doorway. Her hand stayed on the small of my back until she sat me down in her kitchen and plunked a bowl of porridge or something of the sort in front of me. The bowl was red-brown like the not-right trees outside. I was hesitantly beginning to eat when a man climbed down the ladder from the loft, holding one baby tight to his chest and helping two others, older, down after him. He too stopped dead when he saw me and as the younger girls rushed along to the table, setting the baby into her seat and taking their own as their mother plunked porridge down in front of them, the man called to his wife, his tone the sort you use when you see a copperhead on the path in front of you. They spoke in a tongue I didn't recognize, his tone hard and hers somewhere between plying and nonchalant, still as gentle as the one she used to bring me inside. The message was clear. Don't scare her. He moved then to the table and scooped up the baby, bouncing her on his hip as he fed her with his free hand. The man shot me a look, piercing and full. I know what you bring, his eyes said, but he broke her stare before I lost my nerve and looked away. 
The two little girls peered at me over their own bowls of oatmeal as their mother breezily sat glasses of milk in front of each of them. She smacked the back of the eldest's head and snapped something that made her glance away. <laughs> Again, the message was clear. It's rude to stare. It's, it's fine, I finally said, in English, the default I revert to. She's okay. The man and woman exchanged another look, darker this time. They didn't respond, but it confirmed something with them. He nodded. The woman fiddled with her spoon. The man said something more hurriedly, a confirmation, and after a tense nod from the woman sent the children back upstairs as they finished eating before disappearing out the front door, throwing a cloak over his shoulders and storming out into the rain. "'What?' I said as the man left. "'I'm sorry to have intruded. Uh, should I leave?' She sighed, then, and slid into the chair opposite me. Before I could flinch, she grabbed my hands, pulling them into her own. She stared into my eyes as she spoke, prying, supplicant. It was an apology. A last chance. I stared blankly back. The woman sighed once more and left me to finish my porridge. I was scraping the bottom of my bowl when the door was knocked open, slamming against the wall behind it with a crack like the thunder outside. Soldiers! That was the only way they could be described. Soldiers, like medieval knights, came storming in. The woman backed up against the kitchen counter, pressing herself as far away from them as possible and pulling her hands up in a defense as they began to shout. The one in the lead barked something to her, and she pointed at me. Her eyes held an apology. I jumped to my feet. And then they were pulling back my arms and shoving me down before I could run or fight or anything. I'm not sure what my response would have been beyond panic. Because panic had set in, sure and certain. Panic was real and full and I was yelling at the guards, telling them to let me go, that I didn't know what they were saying or what I'd done wrong. The woman had given me the coat. I hadn't stolen anything. The woman stood, pale-faced, I cast around and looked at her desperately, why? But she didn't move her planted feet. Instead, she hesitated for half a second before making a gesture. Fingers curled into a fist with the thumb pressed straight against it and dragged that fist from shoulder to shoulder and out towards me. Two fingers crossed like a broken promise. The gesture turns out to mean a lot of things. It can be a blessing for travel, an apology, and it's a sign of respect for a lot of people. I don't know which one she was using it for. I didn't know any of the meanings then. I cursed at her. Not that she knew what I was saying. Not that I had known what she was saying. The soldiers pulled me outside and shoved me to my knees. It was still raining outside, just as violently as before. Mud seeped through the trousers the woman gave me and turned my knees to ice. 
They bound my hands behind me with coarse rope and pulled a cloth over my eyes, and as I strained my ears, blind, my words useless, and my mind nearly overwhelmed, I made out two words from the entropy around me. Vatikina Elihida. I held on to them because they sounded right. Because the lead soldier, he's important, but not yet, said it with such force that it had to be powerful. They are. The, the words, I mean. Vatikina Elhida. It means chosen child. Prophecy child. They were talking about me. But I didn't know that yet. All my will to run left me the second I stopped being able to see. I could still feel the soldiers around me, but the idea of stumbling through the village off kilter and blind and falling into another ditch or breaking something, or being shot in the back as I tried to run was enough to rocket my anxiety up to an eleven, so I stayed on my knees in the rain in the yard of the woman who fed me trying to figure out what was going on, breathing hard, chest tight. Lost in noise I couldn't pick apart, lost without lips to read and written words to assign to the sounds I heard, lost in a language I didn't understand. A horse whinnied, fearful. A soldier pulled me to my feet and shoved, two-handed, solid and intentional. I stumbled forward, blind and hit, a horse, wet and warm and alive. Somehow I ended up on top of it, balanced precariously in the saddle as a soldier climbed on behind me. I was struggling not to lose my balance when the soldier grabbed the reins and kicked the horse and I slammed back into his chest. Let me tell you, it's a distinctly uncomfortable feeling to be riding a horse blind with your hands tied behind you. You're pinballed between the soldier's arms that are circling you, and, due to the fact that you're trying really hard not to fall off, thus you're in rather, um, close proximity to your captor, you can feel soldier boy's crotch pressing into your back. You're trying not to think about it. You're kind of wanting to fall off the horse because you don't know if it's your imagination or if it's getting harder. I had more than convinced myself I was awake by this point. I couldn't dream soldier dick this vividly, but counting the seconds wasn't working like it should have. I kept losing track. But either way, the rain faded to a drizzle with time, then became nothing but curling humidity, steam rising from the dirt. My blindfold was pulled off, a chunk of my hair with it, a side effect of curls and rain. And a palace unfolded around me. Archways and stonework and more people than I could count all rushing to help the battalion down and into the courtyard. I was pulled off the horse and soldiers surrounded me as I stumbled. They were all still in their helmets, faceless and more unsettling for it. And here, with the ability to see, came the urge to run, adrenaline and fear, creating something potent in my chest, but there were a lot of people, and most of them were armed. Not guns, but swords and daggers. Some had quivers strung over their backs, a few of the soldiers had what looked to be crossbows. 
I didn't really want to get stabbed or otherwise impaled, so as the lead soldier dismounted from his horse and began to stride through the halls, I marched along with the rest of them. It was gorgeous. God, everything a castle should be. Grand and old. Statues and parapets and stained glass and roof lines that looked meant for climbing. We halted. <laughs> halted. Like soldiers, instead of just merely stopping. Outside of a set of double doors, elaborate and gleaming, inlaid with gold and carved with a crest of crossed swords in a lion's face. The people that had dogged the soldiers' steps as they marched drifted back in the lead soldier, the one that called me Alahira, knocked. The door swung open with a near-silent whoosh, born of oil and solid, heavy wood. It was a throne room, even more opulent than the doors outside. Everything was golden and glittering, or made of glossy wood tinted red gold by huge stained glass windows. Courtiers in elaborate clothing, dresses and brocade shirts, silk and embroidery and fabric painted so intricately it must have taken weeks, lined the walls like artwork themselves. They twittered as the lead soldier gave me a half-push forward, made a sweeping motion that clearly meant, after you. Or, maybe, just walk. Listener, you're never more aware of how disastrous and half-drowned you must look until you're on display in a room full of royalty. Royalty, because... Because who else would these people be? It was a damn castle! The lead soldier, a step or two behind me, began to shadow my walk down the aisle. I wrapped the woman's coat closer around myself and tried not to look frightened. Far down at the very end of the hall, a king and queen sat on gilded thrones. The king's crown was crooked, the queen's lips pressed together in a way that broadcasted her distaste. The stairs of the court carried their own weight, but the king and queen, both dressed in dark blues and golden highlights, the queen with tightly coiled hair pulled up and away from her brown face, countenance the definition of museum perfect, and the king, eyes watery pale that moved like a man running calculations, they were something else entirely. The king was some shade of pale, I would have guessed, but currently red as a lobster, sunburnt to the core. He waved away the man at the foot of their thrones, who was bowing and scraping in a plea for something. He was gone by the time I was close enough to take his place. I stopped near ten feet back from the foot of the three stairs that led to their thrones, cowed by the guards halted behind me, but the lead soldier was still at my back. He did not let me retreat any further. Before I could get a word out or have the sense to avert my eyes instead of staring openly like a fool at the kings of this castle, my knees buckled as the soldiers swept them out from under me. I slammed to the floor, forced into a kneel, as pain radiated up my legs when they made contact with the stone floor. Dead silence. And then, Who is this? the king said. In English. English. In this land of anything but. 
I was so shocked by that that the throbbing in my knees subsided for just a moment after an afternoon of not knowing a word. This was beyond strange. The lead soldier stepped out from behind me and I flicked my eyes up just enough to watch as he took off his helmet, shaking out his curly dark hair. He was the spitting image of the couple on the thrones before me, umber-skinned, dark-haired like the lady on the throne, tall and sharp like the man. He was a prince, their son. The girl that changes everything, he said, also in English, dressed in gold, hair of fire, magic in her veins. This was met with expressions of shock from the kings on the thrones, but the court did not react the same way. Just kept staring, waiting, leaning into the stillness. The English, it seems, had escaped them. I took just a moment to be pissed that this boy rode beside me for hours and never let on that he knew what I was saying the whole goddamn way before the pale king spoke again. Prove her he said, and the prince hauled me to my feet and pulled open my coat to reveal my shitty golden hobbit shirt. The reaction, this time, was palpable throughout the entirety of the court. There was crescendoing noise as the prince boy took a step up behind me as, as if in protection, and they clamored for a closer look. I was infinitely grateful to be wearing pants at this point. One word started to filter through the din. An arbol. It took up among the people like a chant, becoming greater and greater. An arbol, an arbol, an arbol, until the queen stood, and with a lift of her hand brought everything back to silence. This silence weighted down with anticipation. In the other language she spoke, her voice ringing through the hall with far more authority than the man stood beside her. The boy prince translated for me, low and close to my ear. I didn't know if it was better that way. My knees still smarted, telling me he was not to be trusted. They bruised by morning. But it was help. And it was understanding something I needed desperately in this world. We will take her to it, he translated. And we will let them decide. An arbol means great tree, or last tree, depending on how you translate. Both are objectively true. I still hadn't known that at the time, though. I, I thought it was a person. At the ushering of the queen, the court swarmed out through the lion gold doors. I was pulled along, the prince boy behind me, and miles of silk brocade in front of me chatter all around in a language unintelligible to my foreign ears. I worried for a moment that this was some kind of execution we were headed to, because it seemed appropriately medieval, but the excitement wasn't underlaced with death. It was hope that ran underneath it all. An odd feeling. 
back through the echoing corridors, back along the almost indoor castle archways, back past the eyes of the watching servants. They gaped beneath their averted glances and added on to the herd moving along as they caught sight of the kings and... and me. They stopped in a large clearing, bottled up ahead of where the prince and I lagged behind the back of the group. He had one hand on my arm, having been sort of pulling, sort of guiding me along, and as they all turned in a wave to look to me, he let go. I swallowed and tried not to cower. And they parted. The court did, and at the prompting of the prince, low and soft in English, his mouth barely moving, I walked shakily towards the giant tree they'd revealed in the center. Twisted and spiraling up towards the sky, leaves thick with green and the veins through the leaves almost seemed to run gold. I stopped at the base of it. My head tilted back. So far I almost fell back over as I stared up into the canopy. It was ancient. That was easy enough to tell. It's hard to quantify exactly how there a tree becomes after this long of life. There, capital T, emphasized. There, as in... <sighs> Sentient seems wrong. Alive isn't extraordinary. It had a presence, like like nothing you see in pine forest and spindly beach reaching up for the sky before they're ready. Do you know the redwood forests in Washington? The trees are giant, yes, but friendly rather than imposing. They welcome people to walk among them. They're ancient and have seen more than you could ever know, but they're kinder for it. The air around them is so... Still, too, it's, it's caves water, but without any threat of night terror. It's, it's stillness and welcoming in that gentle, homey sort of way. It's... <laughs> there-ness. Capital T. It was all of that and more. The world hummed, not externally, no resonation in the air, but it was as if something had activated in my blood and the world shifted into clearer focus. I found myself at the base of the tree. It called to me still, that gentle, slow murmuring of sunlight, and half still caught up in the presence of it all, I reached out and brushed my hand along the trunk. The inner bowl was riddled with age, resistant to change all around it. Smooth, if you ran your fingertips over it in the right direction. And where I expected my hand to stop there, the gentle calling of my blood with this creature greater than myself, it pulled me in. My hand went in a halting, yanking sort of way, and then... Light encapsulated my vision. The 
summer sun at 8.15. That perfect golden glow that catches your eyes and turns everything to fire. It felt like I was on fire. I think I screamed, but no one touched me or moved to pull me away, or if they did, my nerve endings were too light for it to make any sort of difference. My other hand found the tree, and it did not sink in. I stumbled backwards, my palm within the tree closed around something, and I didn't even realize it until the light faded from my vision into a soft greenness that clouded the periphery of my sight. A sword. Like Arthurian legend, like this was Caliburn pulled from the stone. My blood sang. The sword began to glow. Green gold running along the fuller until the whole thing was alight. I raised my sword. Dizzy with the magic in my veins. Vatakina Elahira, I heard. Somewhere behind me. As if I were listening to the radio from another room. Prophecy, child. The light swelled, green gold filling my vision once more, and I fell to the grass. Back Again, Back Again is written and produced by me, Abigail Eliza. If you'd like to hear more about the show, visit us on Twitter, Instagram, or Tumblr at BackAgainPodcast, or on TikTok at Abigail Eliza Writes. Our outro music is Nightingales by Pierce Murphy from the album To Japan, and is licensed under an attribution license. The song was retrieved from freemusicarchive.org. Visit the description of this episode for full copyright information and a link to the page. Sound effect attribution, similarly, can be found in the episode description. If you've made it this far, thanks for sticking around. You are important in this world and have a role that no one else can fill. You are loved. I hope you have a wonderful day.